This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the program, friends. Wherever you are, from Thunder Bay to the Carolinas and Maine to Minnesota, good to have you aboard. I'm still picking the, uh, the corn silk out of my teeth. I had uh, some of the most amazing sweet corn the mighty Aphrodite and I uh, went up to uh, one of the farmer's markets uh, not too far from where we live, north of Toronto in uh, Thornhill. And uh, this place is um, just in- incredible. Uh, the, the, the produce uh, right off of the, uh, uh, the, the farm and uh, like right out back. And uh, the corn, $7 they were charging for a dozen. Can you believe that, David Gaskin? $7 a dozen? Have you ever seen prices like that? But you know what? The mighty Aphrodite, she says, this is why we work, right? We work to eat, and we're going to eat properly. And uh, it's, uh, I don't know that it's entirely organic, uh, but it, they advertise it as the sweetest corn you're ever going to taste. And my word, it was uh, delicious. And uh, just the bounty. Uh, I've never seen eggplants, or aubergine, as we like to call them, uh, this large. Uh, and, the, and okra. And, uh, oh, just amazing uh, garlic. Very expensive, though, but we're willing to pay that because we like when we can. We like to buy local, and we like to support our Ontario farmers. And when, we, when I go grocery shopping with the Mighty Aphrodite, we enjoy grocery shopping. But let me tell you, it's a trip with her because if she doesn't see Ontario produce, she goes right to the back and she demands to see the manager, and she will give him what for. She'll say, why aren't these potatoes from Ontario? It's harvest time, right? We should have local produce. And they'll sort of shrug and, and look down at their feet and, and uh, look very uncomfortable. And uh, she just gives them hell. And good for her. Uh, so the other, um, the other day, she says, uh, here's an article. It's a press release. You should read this and then you should tweet it. She actually does a lot of my tweeting. Uh, uh, and you can follow the tweets at um, twitter.com slash Richard Serrett, all one word. And this is a press release from the the folks out in California who are behind something called Proposition 37. And this is, um, they want to force the big food companies to to divulge what's in their products. 
So if there are things like genetically modified ingredients or organisms in the food, they want that on the label, which seems reasonable. So this press release, uh, she's tweeted it. Uh, Let me just uh, crib here. Released on Monday, August 13th. Big pesticide food companies spend $10 million to fight honest food labels. New campaign finance reports show that pesticide and processed food companies just contributed nearly $10 million to oppose Proposition 37, which would require labeling of genetically engineered foods. We're going to find out what those are in just a moment. According to the California Secretary of State disclosure forms, the largest of these uh, contributions came from DuPont, uh, Bayer Crop Science, and BASF Plant Science. Other contributions include 500,000 each from Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, Nestle, General Mills, and ConAgra. Quote, these uh, corporations are desperate to keep us from finding out what's really in our food, end quote, said Stacey Malkin, media director for California Right to Know. They will not prevail. This is America. We have the right to know what's in the food we eat and feed our children, end quote. Well, here, here. The huge contributions from pesticide and seed companies now topping 7 million with the new donations shine light on a little-known fact about genetically engineered foods. Rather than reducing the need for hazardous pesticides, herbicide-resistant seeds have driven a massive increase in herbicide use that has been linked to significant environmental and public health concerns, explains Marcia Ishii-Eitman, Ph.D. senior scientist at Pesticide Action Network, in a statement supporting Proposition 37. It's clear that genetically engineered herbicide-resistant seeds are the growth engines of the pesticide industry's sales and marketing strategy. These seeds are part of a technology package explicitly designed to facilitate increased indiscriminate herbicide use and pump up chemical sales. So, we're going to discuss honest food labeling and more specifically genetically engineered food or en- genetically engineered organisms, frankenfood, some people call it. And we're going to do that right here and now. Jeffrey M. Smith is an international best-selling author and the leading spokesman on the health dangers of genetically modified organisms, or GMOs. He documents how the world's most powerful uh, agricultural biotech companies bluff and mislead critics and put health, the health of society, at risk. His first book, Seeds of Deception, Exposing Industry and Government Lies About the Safety of the Genetically Engineered Foods You're Eating, became the world's best-selling and number one rated book on GMOs. His second book, Genetic Roulette, The Documented Health Risks of Genetically Engineered Foods, is the authoritative work that presents irrefutable evidence that GMOs are harmful. Jeffrey Smith, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Great, thank you. What are GMOs? Let's start with a definition. Well, you take genes from one species and force it into the DNA of other species. So you have genes from bacteria that are forced into soybeans, allowing the soybean plants to not die when sprayed with Roundup herbicide. They're called Roundup-ready soybeans. You have corn that's genetically engineered to produce its own insecticide that breaks open the stomach of insects to kill them. It's in the corn that we eat. So it's mixing and matching genes between species and even the process itself causes massive collateral damage and might cause new toxins, allergens, or carcinogens into the food, but these are not evaluated before they get put on the market. How prevalent are genetically engineered ingredients in the foods we eat? I guess it's hard to know because we don't have proper labeling. Exactly. It would be great to have labeling, and if we did, we'd realize that if the food was processed, 
then it's probably 9 out of 10 packaged processed foods that contain one of the nine genetically modified food crops. Soy and corn in particular, canola oil especially in Canada, cottonseed oil, as well as sugar from sugar beets. Those are the main ones. So if we often hear the term, they're Roundup Ready, which, which means that these plants are genetically, soy and corn and others, are genetically modified so that they will take as much Roundup herbicide as you can throw at them. Is that the idea? Pretty much. In other words, instead of having to worry about hurting your plants when you are putting on the weed killer, you just spray right over the top. The plants drink the weed killer and put it, store a lot of it right in the food portion that we end up eating. And, of course, Roundup is not the benign herbicide that Monsanto tried to lead us to believe. It turns out it's linked to cancer and Parkinson's and birth defects and problems with estrogen and testosterone production and may be responsible for the horrific reproductive disorders found in lab animals fed Roundup-ready crops. So corn, soy, which, as you, as you indicate, end up in, in feed for livestock and chickens and things like that, Mm -hmm. Uh, What other plants or organisms are genetically modified and used in the food business? So in corn, cotton, canola, sugar from sugar beets, papaya from Hawaii or China, zucchini, yellow crookneck squash, and alfalfa used for hay. These are the only genetically modified food-related crops right now. Now, would these food giants that produce... Uh, these GMOs, DuPont and and Monsanto, which is interesting because those companies originally were in the herbicide and pesticide business, correct? And they still are. You see, it's a big, big opportunity for them to sell lots more chemicals if they sell the seeds that require the use of those chemicals. So, is Monsanto and DuPont are they trying to bring out to bring in more than these nine plants that you you uh, indicated? Would they like to expand? The, uh, the, the types of plants that are GMOs? Indeed, Monsanto's stated goal, as reported by its consultant in a 1999 biotech conference in San Francisco, was to genetically engineer 100% of all commercial seeds in the world, own the patents for those seeds, and sell the associated chemicals. In fact, at the same conference, another company projected that within five years, 95% of all commercial seeds would be genetically engineered. Now, they, they fortunately have not met that time schedule. Consumer resistance and a tipping point of consumer resistance in Europe in particular has stopped that timetable almost in its tracks. But virtually every fruit and vegetable and grain and bean that is common is, has been genetically engineered and is in some place in the pipeline. But it gets worse because there's now mosquitoes that have been released that are genetically engineered. There's a group that wants to introduce genetically engineered fish and livestock and trees. And so basically they're looking to replace nature, cutting off the billions of years of evolution and create man-made combinations with unpredicted side effects, basically designer, um, designer nature, man designing nature rather than nature expressing it from its own wisdom. Jeffrey Smith is with us here on The Conspiracy Show, the author of Seeds of Deception, Exposing Industry and Government Lies About the Safety of the Genetically Engineered Foods You're Eating, and also Genetic Roulette, the Documented Health Risks of Genetically Engineered Foods 
and the website is responsibletechnology.org. Check it out. I've linked to it on my website at richardserrett.com. Now, um, Monsanto and DuPont, um, they would argue, I'm, I'm guessing, Jeffrey, that with 7 billion people on the planet, the only way we're going to be able to feed everyone is to increase crop yields, and the only way to do that is to genetically modify them. Well, that's the public relations spin, and it's completely wrong. It turns out that the most comprehensive evaluation of how to feed the world, done by more than 400 scientists signed on by 58 countries sponsored by the UN and 11 other major transnational organizations, said that the current generation of GMOs has nothing to offer feeding the hungry world. In fact, the average GM crop reduces yield. It concentrates the ownership of seeds and the control of agriculture into few multinationals. It hurts biodiversity. It removes the independence of farmers. It increases the use of agricultural chemicals and dependence on inputs. And they said things like agroecology, which have a huge opportunity for not only increasing yields, but also eradicating poverty and establishing sustainable agriculture, are far more appropriate. So this concept that it's needed to feed the world is complete bogusness. In fact, we have more food per person than any time in human history, and it's not actually yields that are needed. It's access to the food, because even with the ability to feed 11 billion people today, 1 billion go, go to bed hungry or malnourished every night. Interesting. A, a case in point, uh, we're told that uh, this is you know, a horrible drought we're experiencing, and it's really going to hurt the corn uh, uh, farmers and corn production. We're going to see uh, prices, food prices, because corn is in everything. It's going to go sky high in the next uh, year. But having said all that, this is the fourth largest uh, corn yield in, in, in history. So uh, there's some obvious uh, credence in, in what you're saying. Listen, Jeff, uh, stay with us. Uh, we'll take a time out, come back and continue to, to delve into genetically modified organisms. What's in the food you're eating? In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Jeffrey Smith is with us, the author of Seeds of Deception and Genetic Roulette. We're talking about genetically modified organisms. And the future is here and it well, it's not always pretty. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, the news broke that uh, scientists had created essentially a new life form. They took the, the cell of a, um, out of a rat's heart and they created a squid. Do you remember, David, I was telling you about this? And um, I remember your reaction. You said, they're doing this now? They're able to do Yes, we are creating new life forms. And uh, about 10 years ago, I had an, a conversation with... Uh, an author by the name of Frank Ogden. He was a, a futurist. Uh, they call him Dr. Tomorrow. I don't know if he's still with us, but he, he was telling me about how they've taken cells from, let's say, a, a, a ground fish like, the, um, like a halibut. And they, of course, live uh, in the deep Atlantic Ocean near the, near the floor. It's incredibly cold down there. They've taken a cell from this, or a gene, I guess, from this ground fish, and they've put it in uh, either germ wheat or winter wheat that's grown out in Alberta. And so now this, this wheat is able to withstand colder temperatures. Now, Jeffrey, I thought at the time, well, that was, that's kind of cool. That's kind of interesting. I mean, is that the sort of thing, does that concern you when they're doing, I mean, what's the danger of that? 
Well, it, the very process itself of insertion of gene, a gene into a new genome and cloning the cell into a plant can cause hundreds or thousands of mutations up and down the DNA. Up to 5% of the naturally functioning genes can change their levels of expression. So, for example, there's a corn engineered to produce its own toxic insecticide, but it also has 43 other proteins that are either dramatically increased or decreased, and one of those is a new allergen, which is not found in corn normally, but in Monsanto's genetically engineered corn, there's now a, a gene that's switched on that produces an allergen. But that's just the background noise. What they're putting into crops is not necessarily benign. For example, the BT toxin, which is designed to break open holes in the cell walls of the stomach of insects to kill them, the biotech industry and Health Canada and the FDA and EPA said that don't worry, the BT toxin produced inside the corn is destroyed in the digestive tract of humans and mammals. But in Canada last year, at Sherbrooke University Hospital, they found that the BT toxin survived digestion and ended up in the blood of 93% of the pregnant women tested and 80% of their unborn fetuses. But according to Health Canada and the, bi and the biotech industry, don't worry because the BT toxin only affects cells in insects. But that was until this year when the Journal of Applied Toxicology extracted the BT toxin from Monsanto's corn, applied it to human cells, and found that it pokes holes in human cells too, causing leakage. So we have a toxin which can poke holes in human cells in the food supply, and it gets through our intestines into our blood and into the blood of the infants, and they have no blood-brain barrier developed. It could be on their brains. So where were the long-term studies before these uh, organisms, genetically modified plants, were approved by the FDA and Health Canada, I asked sarcastically? Well, you know, the scientists at the FDA had urged their superiors to acquire just that. We have the documents. They were made public from a lawsuit. They warned of allergies, toxins, new diseases, and nutritional problems. They said it deserves human studies, long-term toxicological studies, but the person in charge of policy at the FDA was the former attorney of biotech giant Monsanto, later Monsanto's vice president, now the U.S. food safety czar. Oh, this is too rich. So, they said, so that guy said no safety testing is necessary, no labeling is necessary, that Monsanto, the same company that told us that PCBs, Agent Orange, and DDT were safe, can determine that GMOs are safe and put it on the market without telling the FDA or consumers. And now they're fighting honest labeling in the, in the food business. And, and Monsanto just dropped $4.2 million, raising the total bucket of trying to stop labeling in California to $25 million, and that's just the beginning. So these companies are trying to con confuse voters by saying that labeling is confusing. They're spending more money than they'd ever spend on labeling, saying that labeling is too expensive. So it is a complete whitewash, but it's going to be a very expensive whitewash. Right now, about 70% of voters in California are in favor of labeling, in favor of, the, of Prop 37. We'll see what happens after two months of a $100 million disinformation campaign. Well, let, I, I have an idea what's going to happen, Jeffrey. See if you agree. Let's say the initiative is approved, and they, therefore then it goes on the ballot, I guess, during the next state election, correct? Well, it is it's, approved. It's on the ballot. Okay, so let's say the voters vote for it. If Proposition 37 is approved at the ballot box. Well, given that, uh, the, you know, the incredible uh, elephant in the room, this conflict of interest where you have former FDA, you have FDA officials who were formerly working for Monsanto, 
this this doesn't stand a chance. I mean, even if it's approved by the voters, it'll never see the light of day. Well, here's the thing. The only two uh, bullets that they can fire is a lawsuit, but we, we the, the bill was designed so it was rock solid. It has law on its side. And then they can go to the feds and try and preempt it so no state can pass a labeling law. And that's getting more and more unpopular because what's happening is this. There's now thousands of doctors in North America prescribing non-GMO diets. There's evidence of, of enormous reproductive disorders, immune system problems, gastrointestinal problems related to GMOs, and people are getting better from these symptoms when they switch to non-GMO diets, as are livestock and pets. And even the American Academy of Environmental Medicine urges all doctors to prescribe non-GMO diets, saying that these categories of disease are found in the lab animals that are experimented with and fed GMOs. So there's more and more of a groundswell of concern about the health risks associated with eating GMOs, and that has resulted in non-GMO labels being one of the fastest-growing label claims in America for the past three years, and it's resulted in 19 states introducing labeling bills into their legislature within the last 12 months. None have gotten past Monsanto's influence peddling and threats of lawsuits, but this demonstrates a change in the collective consciousness moving in the direction of greater awareness about GMOs. And we know where that leads because we saw that in Europe. When Europeans were alerted to the concerns about GMOs by scientists, the tipping point of consumer rejection was swift and complete, and GMOs were kicked out. That's what we're trying to engineer here with a massive education campaign. Ah, okay. Well, you've given me some uh, some hope here, Jeffrey, because fact, it, it I'm was very starting. Optimistic, because I've been working on this issue for 16 years, and I've never seen what we're seeing now. GMOs are more lively in the news. There's thousands of people part of our Tipping Point network, which people can access at responsibletechnology.org. We have a shopping guide at non-gmoshoppingguide.com and a free iPhone application called Shop No GMO. And these are very, very popular because the, the need now is to protect our own health and the health of our children who are most at risk as the information gets out. And I'll tell you one thing, that when I lecture to anyone in North America, whether it be doctors or food service directors or the general public, when I poll the audience before and after the lecture, that in, within 45 minutes, virtually everyone in the room has changed their diet, has become more vigilant at wanting to avoid GMOs. They may not have even heard of a GMO in the beginning, but when I describe the thousands of sick, sterile, and dead livestock, the damage to virtually every organ and every system studied, the toxic and allergic reactions in humans, the case studies, the increase in certain diseases since GMOs were introduced, and then I ask them how vigilant they'll be next week at avoiding GMOs, it is, so, it is so remarkable that every single time we've seen dramatic changes on the spot in people's preference. And now we have a new film coming out this week called Genetic Roulette, The Gamble of Our Lives, and we think just watching the film will be sufficient to create this behavior change. Is Monsanto, DuPont, and others coming after you? Well, they're trying to discredit me. You see, I, in my second book, Genetic Roulette, I, I describe, work with more than 30 scientists, and I had every page reviewed by at least three scientists, so it was absolutely as accurate as I could find, as I can produce it. And it was a complete, uh, uh, it did completely trash the claims by the biotech industry and showed, caught them red-handed, lying about their research. They have bad science down to a science. It's tobacco science. It's completely covering up ill health 
and, and they're distorting and denying the evidence. So we caught them red-handed, and so what they did is they created a bogus website called Academics Review, and they say, this shows that we're reviewing Jeffrey Smith's book, and it has all these problems, and they're just they're misquoting and misrepresenting the book. They're supposedly, they're supposedly uh, uh, challenging, and they're doing, using self-contradictory, very, very weak and, and poor scientific arguments, but this is what they point to. So anyone who really knows science and looks at it realizes that they're just basically vapid and, and a facade. Jeffrey Smith is with us here on The Conspiracy Show. We're talking about genetically modified organisms. Uh, they're in your food. You may not know it because uh, it's not indicated on the label. Uh, however, a number of jurisdictions are trying to change that, and we'll see. We'll see what happens. But um, how, can I, uh, how can I make a decision? Uh, how can I decide, you know, to go off genetically modified uh, a non-GMO diet is what I'm trying to say. How can I choose well, a non-GMO diet if I don't know what's on the label, Jeffrey? Well, certainly labeling is going to be the easiest way, and there's about 49 countries that require labeling, and 40% of the world has that luxury or right enforced by the government. But in the United States and in Canada, you have, a, you have to sort of figure it out. We have a shopping guide, and in the shopping guide, it gives you the four tips. Buy organic, buy products that say non-GMO, by products that are listed in our shopping guide, which happen to be third-party verified as non-GMO by a, the non-GMO project, or by products without the at-risk ingredients. And so we have the list of the derivatives of soy and corn, which are rather extensive, as well as others. And this it becomes a, a label-reading exercise. So you can go and buy a spaghetti sauce that has olive oil instead of soybean oil or canola oil. When I go uh, to a restaurant, I make sure they don't cook my stuff in canola oil or soybean oil because I don't want to be exposed to that because I know too much. Once you're exposed, even if you make, you've made the decision, is it, I mean, is it, isn't it too late? Well, it's an interesting question. We know that the only human feeding study ever published showed that genes inserted into soybeans to make the soybeans Roundup ready, not killable with Roundup, part of them transferred into the DNA of bacteria living inside our intestines. And there was evidence that it continued to function, suggesting that it was continuing to function long after we stopped eating genetically engineered foods. And that, of course, is a very scary thing, especially if you think that the same gene transfer is going to happen in corn chips where you have genes engineered to produce this BT toxin that breaks holes in our walls of our stomach, perhaps, and that that may be the reason why 93% of the Canadian women tested had the BT toxin in their blood because their own gut bacteria was producing it day and night nonstop. Now, having said that, I, I'm happy to report that when we interview patients of doctors that prescribe non-GMO diets, they're getting better at, in a, with dramatic improvements. Uh, one woman was 25 days into the diet. Within three days, a colitis uh, a disease, which she had had for 30 years, disappeared. Another person, irritable bowel in a week and a half. Another person took four weeks. We had asthma gone, migraine headaches, infertility, restless leg syndrome. Now, one of the problems with humans avoiding GMOs, as we just discovered, is they may have to avoid some processed foods. They may have to switch to organic. And so there are cofactors which challenge the notion that it's the GMO removal that causes the improvement. But when the animals, the livestock, switch from genetically engineered corn and soy to non-GM corn and soy, the dramatic improvement does not have those conflicting cofactors. And when massive diarrhea problems that were fatal for one Danish pig farmer disappeared in two days and his 
His litter size increased, the conception rate increased, the birth defects disappeared, the deaths from bloats and, bloats and ulcers disappeared. That was the genetically engineered component based on the fact that it was, there were no cofactors. And we're seeing that over and over again with livestock and pets and the same diseases and disorders which are going away in the animals and humans when they switch to non-GMO are the disorders and diseases that have been on the rise in North America since GMOs were introduced. Has Monsanto, is there evidence, clear evidence, Jeffrey? We have to be careful. I know how litigious Monsanto can be, and and you've experienced it firsthand, I'm sure. Is there clear-cut evidence that Monsanto and other uh, uh, companies that produce these GMOs have fudged data? I was talking to a former Monsanto scientist, and he said that when rodents were fed genetically engineered corn and the rodents showed adverse reactions, instead of withdrawing the corn, they rewrote the study to hide the effects. He told me also that three of his colleagues were doing safety studies on the milk from cows treated with Monsanto's bovine growth hormone. They found so much of a cancer-promoting hormone in the milk, the three scientists refused to drink milk thereafter. One bought his own cow. Now, as far as the covering up specifically, in my book, Genetic Roulette, in part three, I have 41 pages of how specifically Monsanto and others rig their research. So when they wanted to show that injections of bovine growth hormone into cows did not interfere with their fertility, According to documents stolen from the FDA and made public, it appeared that Monsanto actually invited cows into the study that were already pregnant before they were ever injected. I mean, there's a lot of very, very blatant rigging of research that we have exposed, the wrong detection methods, the wrong statistical methods, uh, the wrong controls. And then when they still find deaths, disorders, and diseases in the animals that are fed GMOs, they dismiss them with completely unscientific support but their regulators just parrot what the biotech industry says, and then we understand that many of the regulators are, are intimately connected with the biotech industry around the world. Hold on, Jeffrey. We'll uh, take a time out back with more on Franken Foods here in The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now, 416-360-0740, or toll-free in Ontario, at 1-866-740-4740. Jeffrey Smith stays with us. We're talking about genetically modified organisms. And uh, again, uh, you want to check out his website. It's responsibletechnology.org. And um, that film, you said, that's uh, just been released uh, this week, uh, uh, Jeffrey, on GMOs. Where can people see that? Well, it's um, right now available for order at Genetic Roulette Movie dot com there's a trailer up there so people can watch the trailer we are we are not going to go through the normal channels and um, wait and try and get a theatrical release because of the california ballot initiative it's an absolutely critical and pivotal pivotal event that can change the course of events this century and change the way americans and canadians eat because i think that when the companies are forced to disclose that they're using GM ingredients. They know that 53% of Americans say they would avoid GMOs if labeled. So I don't think these companies are going to stick around to wait to see if they're going to lose market share and goodwill on July 1st, 2014, when the labels are required. I think they're going to be reorganizing their supply chain and having farmers grow non-genetically engineered products in order to meet the demands of humans who want to eat healthier non-GMO foods. 
So that's what I think is going to be going on right now. A lot of allergies these days. You mentioned um, uh, that earlier. But are peanuts genetically modified? Because I don't remember as a kid uh, so many peanut allergies. And, and everywhere you turn now, someone has a – it can be deadly. It's very interesting about peanuts. They're not genetically engineered, but they doubled the peanut allergy rate in the five years after genetically modified soybeans were introduced. Now, there is a cross-reactivity between soybeans and peanut allergies. So some people who are allergic to peanuts will be triggered by soybeans, and it may be possible that all the massive collateral damage in the soybeans, which increased a known allergen trypsin inhibitor by as much as sevenfold, which increased uh, an anti-nutrient, it might have also enhanced this cross-reactivity. But also we know that the Bt toxin, when fed to mice, caused them to be resensitive or reactive to formerly harmless foods. And so it's possible that when you give genetic engineered crops or foods to individuals, they can become more sensitive or allergic to other items. And this also happened in another experiment with peas that never made it to the market, fortunately. Also, the genetically engineered soy, when fed to mice, it reduced the amount of pancreatic digestive enzymes produced. And so if that's the case, and it, it takes longer for proteins to be broken down, it gives a longer period of time for proteins to trigger an allergic reaction. So again, we may be seeing a compromised immune system for many reasons, and one we've already discussed. If the BT toxin drills holes in the cell walls of our intestines and material that's not fully digested gets through the intestines into the bloodstream, that can lead to food allergies, autoimmune disease, inflammation, and some say autism and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and cancer because gut, leaky gut is so dangerous, according to many scientists and doctors. All right, people are lining up on the, on the, uh, the lines here. Are you ready to take some calls? Absolutely. All right, Daniel is in West Virginia. Daniel, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Well, good evening. Uh, what I wanted to raise the subject about, as you were discussing, the Roundup Ready crops of which the USDA is getting ready to green light Roundup Ready soybeans down here in the U.S., and we already have the Roundup Ready corn. Um, I wanted to point out that Roundup, is, uh, its principal ingredient, is glyphosate, which is popularly known as 2,4-D. And you want, if you want the jawbreaker for the exact uh, organo uh, compound, I can give that to you. But that is one half of the composition of Agent Orange. The other half is 2,4,5-T, which breaks down into a compound called TCDD, which is a dioxin, and is, has been called by some the most dangerous compound ever synthesized by man. Now, what happens when, two, especially 2,4,5-T, which is supposed to be banned from use in the United States, but I don't believe it, that it's enforced, in the presence of heat, it breaks down into this dioxin compound, and because they are both phenyl acetic acids, 2,4-D will break into a similar compound in the presence of heat. I think it's that these are too dangerous a substance to be using indiscriminately on, the, on millions of acres of cropland in North America, let alone the rest of the world. All right, Daniel, thank you for that uh, information. Did you want to uh, jump in on that, uh, Jeffrey? Sure, yes. Daniel, it's my understanding that glyphosate and 2,4-D are actually two different compounds that may be related, but what's happening is 
with the spread of Roundup and Roundup Ready soybeans have been in place since 1996, there's so much Roundup being sprayed, the actual increased number, the amount of herbicide increase in the first 16 years of GMOs is about 527 million pounds more because of the GMOs in the United States. Um, that Roundup is found in the air samples, the rain samples, the water samples, the urine of city dwellers, and it's found in our bloodstream. It's found in the bloodstream of fetuses. Oh, my and word. The overuse of it has caused super weeds, and so the, the effectiveness of Roundup is becoming less, and so now they want to introduce what we call Agent Orange crops, or those that are resistant to 2,4-D. Oh, lovely. Hold on, Jeffrey. Toxic. i got to take a time out here. Glyphosate. Hold on, Jeffrey. i got to take a time out. We'll, um, we'll, Indianapolis and New York checks in next with some questions. Jeffrey Smith, genetic, genetically modified organisms. Here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Let me see if I heard that correctly. Agent Orange Ready crops. Is that what you said, Jeffrey? Agent Orange Ready crops? Yes. The 2,4-D, which is half the component of Agent Orange, they actually have crops waiting to be approved that can drink this stuff for breakfast, which means we're going to see millions of pounds more of this very toxic ingredient. In the process of making it, there's these side effects called dioxin, which the caller referred to, very, very dangerous. And not only that, but the 2,4-D can kind of vaporize and then move over to the friend's field and then drop down and kill those, that field as well. So it's, it's, it's a disaster waiting to happen. Here's a very fundamental question. Can we now say that we no longer can count on the FDA in the United States and Health Canada to protect consumers? Well, I don't know when we were able to do that. I remember knowing that an FDA commissioner said the one thing that bugs me is that people think the FDA is protecting them, and they're not. So even the founder of the FDA within 27 years was lamenting at how the, the corporations had taken over and that the FDA was really the enforcement wing of the corporations they were supposed to regulate. I know that in the USDA it's now run by Secretary uh, Vilsack, who was the former Biotech Governor of the Year in 2001, we know that USAID um, is, was run by a Monsanto guy. The U.S. Trade Office for Agriculture is run by a biotech guy. We have a situation where it's hard to know where the White House and administration end and the biotech industry begins. I, so I don't think I'm over... when they were protecting us, but I do know that it's been an abdication and not a regulation. Uh, I was told by a former Health Canada official that they are told to refer to uh, these companies that are seeking approval as clients. Yes, I've talked to the Shiv Chopra and others, and yes, uh, it was amazing. He said, no, the public should be the client. And they said, no, no, these are the companies, they're the clients. And uh, there's a whole story about how Monsanto had allegedly offered a bribe to the Health Canada senior scientists by trying to get them to approve the bovine growth hormone without further study. Jeffrey, I don't know if I'm overstating this, but this is starting to sound like corporate fascism. Well, I think, it, you know, fascism is how corporations can run governments, and I think we have, certainly have the situation well in hand right now for that when it comes to biotechnology. When you look at the WikiLeaks for the U.S. government embassies, the uh, ambassador to France basically called on Washington to create a retaliation list against countries resistant to GMOs and that the action should, quote, cause some pain. The ambassador to Spain 
uh, wrote to Washington saying, I met with uh, the Monsanto director in the area, and we should come up with pressure on Brussels to force GMOs on Europe, and we should support the pro-GM forces within the Spanish government, etc., etc. And it's very, very blatant. It's explicit to promote biotechnology. Well, now we know why the uh, the witch hunt for Julian Assange, and God bless Ecuador for offering him uh, asylum. But uh, my, my, I guess how long before the United States accuses Ecuador of harboring terrorists? That's yeah. <laughs> what they did with Ecuador, according to WikiLeaks, is to try and bring some of the Ecuadorian reporters to the U.S. so that they could be oriented by the biotech industry as to how to report on GMOs. Well, I was in Taiwan recently and read to a press conference at Congress there to the reporters that were covering it how the U.S. had offered to bring the regulators from Taiwan to the United States, paying them $3,000 each, and then have Monsanto and others teach them how to regulate GMOs. My word. Uh, let's say hello to Pat in Indianapolis. Pat, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hi there, folks. How are you tonight? Well, thank you. You know, I've been listening through most of the program, and uh, Jeff has mainly talked about uh, uh, Monsanto in the chemical field, and then uh, DuPont, which uh, had to bail Pioneer out because Pioneer squandered some things on uh, uh, test research and everything, and... um, that's how they got a hold of Pioneer. The company I used to be affiliated with there in Indianapolis uh, had a competing product uh, against Monsanto uh, <clears throat> that called Treflan, and that was produced by Eli Lilly and Company and sold through its uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, other division identified as Elanco Products. Uh, we did have some of those chemicals which you mentioned earlier. Only the most dangerous one was PCTB. I can't even pronounce it. It had 52 letters on it. The compound was manufactured by uh, Hooker Chemical up there in uh, uh, Niagara Falls, New York, and then shipped by tank car down to the plant in Lafayette. Well, once we got it, we discovered there was a lot of cancer-causing carcinogens to it. And we had to run it through two additional refining processes, three additional refining processes, where we were able to capture maybe 60 to 70% of the bad material, but we never could get get it all. The other compound that was produced was... uh, At that time, American Oil, which is now BP uh, uh, Industrial Products, down there in Texas City. It, too, had some uh, bad ingredients, but not as bad as that that hooker compound. Did they nonetheless receive FDA approval, Pat? They were able to garner FDA approval. (laughs) There you go. Well, what more needs to be said? We got into some uh, big troubles with... Uh, their pharmaceutical manufacturing, and they had to uh, sell part of uh, Elanco off. In fact, the formula at Lilly was, as Treflan went, so went Elanco, and as the profits of of, of Elanco went, so went the profits of Eli Lilly. Uh, 
All right, Pat, listen, I, um, I, I have to cut in here because we're, we're running short on time. This is all amazing information. Let me get Jeffrey in here before I move on to the next call. Jeffrey, did you want to respond to anything that Pat has uh, brought up? Yeah, we know that Eli Lilly has been sued for um, misbranding and mismarketing. And when they were trying to get bovine growth hormone approved, they were in competition with Monsanto. I talked to a former FDA regulator, and he said that Eli Lilly had sort of rigged their research and violated good standard practices to try and pretend that their um, bovine growth hormone was okay. Well, they didn't end up marketing it. Uh, only Monsanto did, but then Monsanto sold it off to Eli Lilly, so birds of a feather. All right. Uh, up next is Karen in New York. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Karen. Yes, hi. My question is pretty basic. I, I remember when I first heard about this and actually went to some USDA trainings as a paraprofessional and was um, being told that this was perfectly safe, you know, there was no problem with GMOs. But I, I also was skeptical at the time, and I, I've heard that um, in the case of corn and soybean, it's it's going, it's almost like horses out of the barn, and it's almost impossible to avoid it now because other fields can be, uh, whether it's from drift or whatever, um, can be affected. Is that true? Well, once you release the genes into the gene pool, it's a self-propagating genetic pollution, and there's no way to fully clean up the gene pool. It can outlast the effects of global warming and nuclear waste. But if we removed GMOs from the market now, the exposure would go from massive to tiny. It wouldn't go to zero. So right now, if you buy organic products, they're not allowed to intentionally contain GMOs, but some may have tiny amounts of contamination. Likewise, the non-GMO project verified products, even though they've been tested and verified to meet the standards, may have a tiny amount of contamination. This is one of the tragic aspects. The biotech industry years ago claimed that you would be, we would more likely get pregnant from a toilet seat than have a non-GMO plant be cross-pollinated by a GMO. And, of course, they knew that wasn't true. They just tried to to shame anyone that thought it was, now they say, oh, yeah, yeah, it's inevitable, but it's not important. If I have an organic farm, um, and I, I, I can't remember if you mentioned alfalfa was a, a GM, a genetically modified crop. Yes, it is okay. alfalfa, yes. Let's say I have, I'm growing organic alfalfa for the organic uh, beef cattle uh, industry. And so I want to ship that organic uh, alfalfa as feed to a, a beef farmer. And a couple of concessions over is an alfalfa uh, a farm that is genetically, where the plants are genetically modified. And one of those seeds or you have this drift, right? And, yes. and now my, my crops are contaminated. And you may Do just be violating the law because according to the Canadian Supreme Court, when this happened with canola uh, contaminating Percy Schmeisser's farm, Monsanto sued him. For patent? Uh, he saved his seeds and replanted it. It violated the intellectual property rights against Monsanto's patent. And so you may have to turn over all of your property to the company that contaminated your seeds. Unbelievable. I was going to argue the other way. I was going to argue since I would theoretically lose my organic designation, don't I have any recourse? Couldn't I sue them? But you're saying they'll sue me for patent infringement and take my crops. That is, according to the Canadian Supreme Court, you can read the, the, uh, the judgment against Percy Schmeisser. Yes. Now, I am hoping that, a, that, that someone will actually test the opposite and, uh, in the courts and see what they say then, because 
it's obvious that the, the non-GMO and organic farmers are really being clobbered by the introduction of GMOs, which can threaten their very business model. Jeffrey, I don't know if you, if you know Thomas Pollock, uh, the author of The End of Food. No, I don't. He's, uh, oh, he's a definitely someone you should get in touch with. Loves, lives up near Ottawa, wrote this book, The End of Food, talks about uh, the dangers of GMOs, uh, worked at a, um, a fairly prestigious um, uh, university. He can't prove it, but believes he was let go because for 30 years he's been writing about these sorts of things and, and believes that big food exerted uh, a great deal of pressure on the university, and, and uh, out he went. Again, he, he, he can't prove it. Um, but he talked about uh, alfalfa and, uh, and, and, and wrote an article and tried to sell it to an Alberta newspaper because obviously cattle next to oil is, is huge in Alberta, and uh, wanted to warn, in this article, wanted to warn the farmers about uh, the encroachment of uh, genetically engineered alfalfa. Uh, the editors of the newspaper weren't interested. They said, we don't have time for this. We're in the midst of an election. Yes. <laughs> this is See, the frustration. It, it, the media is actually controlled in part by the advertising. And it actually gets worse. I mean, it's not just the fact that it's genetically engineered. Now there's a group of scientists that have discovered a new organism the size of a virus that appears to be causing infertility and spontaneous abortions in livestock and comes from feed that has been sprayed with Roundup. So the Roundup incre- increases the per- presence of this organism, according to the research to date. Now, there was a letter written to Secretary Vilsack of January last year, urging him not to approve Roundup Ready Alfalfa because more Roundup could just exacerbate this problem, which is already potentially epidemic proportions in livestock and possibly in humans, and it was completely ignored. They said they ignored the plea to not approve Roundup Ready Alfalfa, and they did not follow up with research by the USDA on something that these very highly credentialed scientists had pointed out as an emergency. Well, Jeffrey, um, thank you for, uh, for this uh, last hour, and I, I, I'm sure that uh, a lot of people's ears have pricked up, and uh, they're going to be anxious to see this, this film that's, uh, that's coming out again. How, is it, uh, how can they screen yes, it? GeneticRouletteMovie.com. It's called Genetic Roulette, The Gamble of Our Lives. And also for those that want to avoid GMOs, I hope everyone, NonGMOShoppingGuide.com. Jeffrey, thank you again. Thank you. Jeffrey Smith, and uh, his website, responsibletechnology.org. And uh, listen, if, uh, if you're upset about this, go to your, uh, go to your grocery uh, store, talk to the, the manager there and say, we don't want GMOs in our food. And as always, you can check out uh, information on this show and upcoming shows on the website, www.richardserrett.com. Welcome aboard, friends, into our new affiliates down in Birmingham and Huntsville, Alabama, Asheville, North Carolina, uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome. Welcome to uh, The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. One of the things that we do on this program is hopefully help you to see things in an entirely new light, look at things differently uh, than they are reported to, uh, to you in the, uh, the mainstream media. Uh, and uh, present that information, and then what you do with it, I guess, is is up to you, but uh, at least we can start that process. Because one of the things that uh, I've discovered over the last uh, 15 years doing this uh, program on the, uh, on the radio is that things are not always as they appear. Reality is, um, in some cases, uh, programmed and massaged 
and uh, presented to us uh, sort of in a prepackaged form. Take the Arab Spring, this wonderful movement uh, that I guess really started in December 2010, an uprising in Tunisia, which saw the ouster of their president, uh, Ben Ali. Then it quickly spread to places like Yemen and Morocco. Uh, there was an uprising in Bahrain, or Bahrain, Egypt, of course, Libya, uh, and now Syria. We're all familiar with what's uh, going on in Syria, horrible bloodshed, a civil war. But is it really as it has been depicted in the mainstream media, here in the West primarily, are these uprisings grassroots uprisings? Are they populist uprisings from within, people demanding change? Or are they being helped along, perhaps even orchestrated by outside forces? Are there outside insurgents involved? That is the conclusion of uh, my next guest, who has really labeled... Uh, these movements as the fake Arab Spring, emphasis on fake. Stephen Lendman is an independent researcher and the host of the Progressive Radio News Hour. He writes a popular blog about American imperialism, political persecution, and a wide range of other subjects. He's the author of How Wall Street Fleeces America, Privatized Banking, Government Collusion, and Class War. And he joins me tonight from his home in the Windy City, Chicago, Illinois. Stephen Welcome to the Conspiracy Show, my friend. Oh, thank you, Richard. I'm delighted to be on with you. Yeah, and it was, it was a great pleasure meeting you in Chicago in person earlier uh, this spring. We were taping an interview for my, uh, my television program, The Conspiracy Show, and that was an unbelievably cold, blustery day. Uh, so the Chicago, Chicago is not the windy uh, city for nothing, but, but how's your summer going so far? <laughs> we have, well, I guess you could have the same in Toronto, Richard. We, 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 we seem to have long winters and short summers, and I must say it's been a very strange summer in Chicago. July, the hottest summer in Chicago history. August, including today, uh, bloody chilly. My goodness. I'm, I'm wearing a heavy top. If we were on TV, you'd, you'd see me wearing something I wear in the winter times. My God, August traditionally is the warmest month in Chicago. Not this year. No, we're getting a cool one here as well uh, right now. Um, all right, on, on to the Middle East. You've been writing a lot about the revolutionary wave of demonstrations and protests, as I say, that swept across the Middle East beginning in December 2010. And you have dubbed it the fake Arab Spring, and we'll find out more about what you mean by that in a moment. Let's talk about Syria, because what we have there now is a full-scale civil war. The UN recently has pulled out all of its uh, observers, and um, there have been horrible massacres, horrible massacres. Uh, according to various sources, including the UN, up to 21,000, or somewhere between 21,000 and 28,000 people have been killed, half of those civilians, but also including 10,000 armed combatants from both the Syrian army and rebel forces. Uh, and according to the UN, between 500,000 and 1 million Syrians have been displaced within the country. You see what's happening there, though, in a very different light. You've been writing that what's been happening in Syria is not a populist uprising, but an outright invasion by outside insurgents. Oh, 
Assad is absolutely right, Richard. This is an invasion. I make no bones about it. If you watch propaganda TV in America, they will completely get it wrong and, and feed you the body line, which is exactly the opposite of what's going on. There's nothing in, in Syria going on that can be called an uprising or a revolution or a civil war. It's a disgrace to use those terms. Plain and simple, it's an invasion. Most of the elements fighting have been brought in from the outside. They're militants, they're mercenaries, they've been paid, they've been sold the bill of goods. I don't know what they tell these people. They feed them a pack of lies. I don't think these people really know what they're fighting for. All they know is they're getting paid, and, and, and it may be as much in the way of promises as actual cash in hand. How do you pay somebody? How do you give them money when, when they're fighting in a war zone? Where are they going to put their money? So I imagine a lot of it is promises, and if it's promises, a lot of them are never going to come through. Uh, as far as opposition goes, every country has opposition. I've made this point a few times. Every country has opposition. Syria has legitimate opposition that want a different kind of government. My goodness, Canada has opposition. America has opposition. The difference between Canada and America and the European countries where you see protests breaking out all the time, big ones, very angry people about what's going on, they do it nonviolently. They don't go out and shoot at each other. They don't kill each other. The fact that you've got these insurgents in, in Syria, uh, even if they were homegrown, which they are not, they may be, they may be some homegrown, but the great majority have been brought in from the outside. I mean, they've come in with lighter weapons at first. Now they've got heavier weapons, and they are killing people. I mean, that is the stark difference between opposition there and what it really means compared to when you see angry people on Western streets, whether it's kids in Canada, in the Quebec protesting about tuition fees, or Occupy Wall Street in America, or protests in Greece or Spain or Italy, the UK, Germany, all across Europe. Again, those people aren't killing each other. So then who's responsible for the for these bloody massacres in Syria? Is it the, uh, and I'm talking about places like Hula and Homs and Al-Kubair, is it the Syrian army, as we've been told in the media, or are these, again, outside insurgents uh, calling themselves the Free Syrian Army? Oh, it's absolutely the outside insurgents. The army has nothing to do with it. The people that are being targeted, Richard, are pro-Assad loyalists, Bashar Assad, the president of Syria, loyalists, people that are loyal to the government, that want the violence ended, they want Syria restored to peace and calm. They're the ones being targeted. And, uh, and, and, and the U.N. and the Western nations, they all know what's going on, but they lie and they feed people a pack of goods, and they literally blame Assad for the crimes of these insurgents. Once in a while, a legitimate story gets into a major paper. The Spiegel wrote about it. The Spiegel wrote about uh, these death squads running around. McClatchy newspapers in the last week or two wrote about the same thing. Not the way I write about it, not the way people who end up on real progressive websites write about it in great detail and what's going on and who wins and who loses and why these things are happening. But they put out legitimate information that's very important. And there have been some, some Western journalists who have really told the story right. But the, but the people doing the most killing are these insurgents. 
I think the Syrian army is doing what what it can to minimize civilian casualties. But when you're fighting people who hide themselves away in neighborhoods and secrete themselves in homes of people, I mean, they literally go in and they can either say, either, either go along with us or we'll kill you, or in some cases maybe they do kill them, You've got to do something to get rid of these people, or they'll just stay there and make things worse. So the army has to go in, and in all wars, even the best of them, innocent people die. Civilians are the ones who are always harmed the most. But it's these, it's these insurgents, their death squads, their, desk, their Western enlisted death squads that are going around causing the problems. Exactly the same thing that went on in Libya, and uh, Al-Qaeda is very much involved. Uh, Hillary Clinton admitted in, in Syria they were there in Libya. They called themselves the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, an organization that's on the U.S. State Department terrorist list, but yet they were enlisted by America and other NATO countries to go in and kill Libyans, and now they're doing it in Syria. Stephen Lenman is with us, independent journalist, host of the Progressive Radio News Hour. We're talking about the deplorable situation in Syria, and Stephen says it's not what it appears to be or not as it's being portrayed by the Western media. What can you tell me about Syrian President Bashir al-Assad? When I see him on TV, he doesn't strike me as a bloody, iron-fisted despot, not like his, his late father, the former president. He seems rational, reasonable. He seems to genuinely care about his people. Now, I've not met him, but I'm told by colleagues that he genuinely wants reform and, and was, in fact, introducing widespread reform. What are your thoughts on Assad? Oh, I absolutely agree, Richard. I think he's a guy who never wanted to be the president of Syria. It's a shame that the job was passed on from father to son. Uh, Bashar is a doctor. He uh, was educated, I think, largely in Great Britain. He's a doctor. I don't know what his field is, but he's a doctor. And when you look at him, he doesn't look like the typical head of state. And I think I think that he really, uh, given uh, his preference, would have preferred to practice medicine rather than uh, uh, rule uh, any country, let alone Syria. Syria is an authoritarian state, but they really have done some marvelous things in the past year since the crisis broke out, broke out in winter 2011. It's been going on for, for some time now, and there's no end in sight to it. But last March, I believe it was, uh, a new constitution was formed. I wrote about it. I wrote about it twice, I think. Uh, they had an, uh, an, an original draft, and there were, there were things in it or possibly left out that people didn't like. They changed it, and they put the constitution to a national referendum. America has never, never had a national referendum, especially on something as important as a constitution. But, but the Syrian government wanted the, wanted the people to decide, do you want these things? They, they not only wanted the new constitution, they voted overwhelmingly for it. And then in May, they had their first ever really legitimate parliamentary elections. And they had outside international observers come in, and they judged the elections open, free, and fair. And I believe they were, and they were wonderful. And the ruling party won a 60% majority, but there were opposition people uh, elected to parliament. It was a legitimate operation, and the West put it down, calling it a farce and the rest of it. It was not a farce. 
I think it was far more legitimate than the election America is going to have in November, where corporate-run electronic voting machines control everything. You put your vote in for candidate A, and candidate B can get two votes. What kind of an election is that? And then you've got, you really don't have two parties competing. You've got one party with two wings. I think the opposition parties in Syria are much more legitimate than they are in America, and they end up uh, winning uh, positions in the parliament. But it certainly doesn't happen in America. You don't see Green Party members ending up in America's Congress or even Libertarians, and uh, there are a number of independent parties that run, but they win a minute fraction of the vote because the system is rigged to, to, to be sure that you either get Republicans or Democrats in office and they're really just two wings of the same party, and the late Gorvidal called them, he used two terms, either the property party or the money party, and that really is the way to characterize them. They certainly don't serve the ordinary people of the country. I wish people would realize that and absolutely spurn them both. All right, Stephen Lenneman, stay put in Chicago, and uh, we'll reconnoiter on the other side and continue to discuss what you are dubbing the fake Arab Spring. Not at all what is being portrayed and uh, to us in the mainstream media and what's going on in Syria. Again, your perspective, very different, radically different than what we're being, I guess, spoon-fed. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Question everything, indeed. Like Syria, for example. We're led to believe that uh, President uh, Bashar al-Assad is a ruthless dictator and that the uh, Syrian uh, security forces, the Syrian army, has perpetrated crimes against humanity, horrible massacres, slaughtering their own civilians, uh, and that the Syrian people want a regime change. My guest, Stephen Lenman, says that's not true. Syria along with many of these other uh, countries in the Middle East that have experienced uprisings, have in fact been instigated, orchestrated by NATO, the United States, England, Germany, France. These countries have been targeted for regime change, and Syria is no different. These are outside insurgents that have come in and stirred up this trouble and are committing these horrible massacres. Stephen, if... This is, in fact, Syria is, is in fact, uh, a NATO operation. Why are they doing this? Syria has no oil. They grow grain. They have some tourism. It's a secular state. The Ba'ath Party has a lot of faults and a pretty dark and bloody past, but the Syrian people are well taken care of. They have free health care, free education, no poverty to speak of. Why does the U.S. and NATO want a regime change in Syria? Well, one of the reasons would be that he gives benefits to the people, even though Syria doesn't have the same wealth that uh, that Libya had under Gaddafi. Gaddafi gave marvelous, absolutely marvelous benefits, including some that were really astonishing, Richard. Newlyweds got a $50,000 stipend. Can you imagine that? A $50,000 stipend. There was no homelessness. Uh, Gaddafi wanted everybody to have a home and free education, free health care. He paid for education overseas for qualified students that wanted to study abroad. Uh, uh, Syria did what it could with the resources it had. But the common theme, the common thread in all these countries, whether it's Afghanistan or Iraq or Libya or Syria and Iran, it isn't a form of government. 
it's the fact that they're independent. They're not in the West pocket. They're not a Western puppet state. They don't follow the Western party line. Oh, sure, they, they, they do a lot of things that are the same things that go on in Western countries, but they maintain their individual sovereignty above all else. So they're independent. America wants regimes that they, ha- that they control, that they have in their pocket. So they control, they control the other states in the Middle East, uh, the Saudis and the Bahrainis and the Qataris, and uh, they all play ball together, one hand feeds the other. But the independent states absolutely reserve a certain amount of autonomy to govern their countries the way they wish, regardless of how the West feels. That's a no-no in Washington and in Britain and in France and, I guess, Italy and Germany, the major NATO countries. And those are the countries that get targeted for regime change. And what few people realize is that the plans for this began early in the 1990s. I don't know whether the genesis could have even been earlier than that. Very against Iran, I, I, I think it began in 1979, or very shortly after that. But against the other countries, it's, let's say the beginning of the 1990s, and I think the initial mastermind was Paul Wolfowitz, who worked in the senior Bush administration, then came into uh, George W. Bush's administration. And uh, in the late 1990s, we had an organization form called Project for the New American Century, PNAC. Uh, PNAC uh, said, well, I mean, we can't do these things unless we have some kind of a catalyzing uh, event like a new Pearl Harbor, a new Pearl Harbor. Well, voila, 9-11, there's your new Pearl Harbor. Uh, regime change. Uh, four weeks later, war with Afghanistan. It was a toss-up. Should we go after Iraq or Afghanistan first? Well, how they made that decision, I'm not sure, but they went after Afghanistan first, then they went after Iraq, Libya was on the list, we've got Syria, Iran is on the list, uh, Sudan was on the list, now it's been balkanized, so it's northern Sudan that's on the list, Somalia, uh, any other country that, that is independent, and these are all in, in, in the Middle East, North African, Central Asian area. Uh, in other parts of the world, you've got countries too. I'm sure Ecuador is on the list now. I think Ecuador has been on the list, but even more so now. Venezuela, Hugo Chavez, goes on and on. Any right. nation that values its own sovereignty um, above America's, they get targeted for regime change. Stephen, I don't understand why the U.S. and NATO would ignite these fires across the Middle East and then not think about the consequences. So they get rid of Mubarak, but instead Egypt is now ruled by the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, And who knows who will take over after Assad. Uh, Syria could become a a radical Muslim state like Iran ruled by the, I don't know, the Wahhabists. How could that be a good situation for U.S. or, or NATO? Well, I think that that the Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia, I think they're a little bit uh, over the top for Washington, but the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, most people don't realize that they go back to the 1920s, initially under a different name, and I think they changed their name to the Muslim Brotherhood in the late 1920s. All along, they were very closely tied to British intelligence, MI6, or whatever British intelligence was called way back then. And when the CIA was created in 1947, they were tied with the CIA. And the tip-off is when Morsi was elected president, Muslim Brotherhood, Obama called him and congratulated him. Now, if This is in Egypt. Uh, this is in Egypt, we should <laughs> clarify, yeah. 
<laughs> if he was the kind of guy that Washington just deplored, absolutely deplored, I mean, you would have seen the screaming headlines in the New York Times and on Fox News and the rest of it, just berating this guy. But, I mean, they they endorse him. They like him. Uh, congratulations on being elected. I think the election was a sham. And I talk about things uh, in the Middle East. I've said it in other, in other contexts as well. The so-called Arab Spring, that's a Western term. It's not It's not a regional term. I like to say... Everything changed but stayed the same, Richard. There really isn't much different today than a year ago in the Middle East, but two years ago. So Mubarak is gone in Egypt, and you've got Morsi in, uh, a couple of generals. I, I, would, I, I would have loved to have written about that, and I may end up doing it, but I'm not certain whether what I think happened, in fact, did happen, and I have no way to prove it. But the two, as a top general... And I believe, if not his number two, another one of the top ones, the headlines were that Morsi dumped them and replaced them with two other generals. Well, did Morsi dump them or did other generals dump their own and just come in in their place? I mean, did Morsi only make the announcement but the generals actually make the decision? Egypt has been run by by, uh, the general Scaff. For decades, it goes back uh, at least to Gabdul Abdul Nasser, I think before him. I mean, four, five, six decades. It's always been the generals that have run Egypt. And, and, and usually the presidents and the top officials are former high-ranking military officers. Mubarak uh, was a general. I believe he was a general. But he certainly was a high-ranking officer. Morsi, I believe, is different. But he's very closely tied with the U.S. and, and, and Western interests. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood has always been business-friendly, very close to bankers. So it rings the, 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 the familiar bells that this is a guy that Washington would be very delighted to have in power. So you've got a new face, but you've got the old policies. You've got the old generals out. You've got new generals in. Uh, and the way it was set up by the old generals were that they had the power to override anybody who ran the country. They had the power to appoint the prime minister, and if they didn't like what the president of the parliament were doing, they had veto power. I don't think that's changed. Well, explain to me, I'm trying to understand, if Mubarak, for example, in Egypt, uh, was not forced out by these protests and this uprising, uh, but rather it was engineered behind the scenes by the U.S. or NATO. How do they do it? Well, how they, how they, how, how they, how, how they build the schemes, I sure don't know, Richard. Uh, I, I mean the details of what they do. They certainly were working close to the, with the generals, and Mubarak fell out of favor years ago. He mostly went along with U.S. policies. In that respect, he was fine. But don't forget he was around for a few decades. So he mostly got along with what uh, America and the West wanted to do. But there were some important things that he opposed. He opposed the Iraq War in 2003. I think that alone was the kiss of death. So uh, the uh, the long knives were out for him. It was just a matter of time when they were going to put the knife in his back. And they orchestrated a, a scheme to get rid of him, and they concocted this Arab Spring. At the same time, the protests in the streets by ordinary people that was very real. All across the region, those protests are absolutely real. The problem is they're not getting what they're protesting for. 
They want they want a living wage. They want corruption at least cut way way back. They want to live in a decent country without without uh, dictators running things. That's all the Bahrainis want. They simply they they want something resembling a democracy. They want they want some say in choosing their government. They don't like the idea of a of a despot posing as a monarch, uh, supported by Western powers, running the country like like a private fiefdom. That's all they want, and a decent job. And they want to be treated just the way others are treated. So the Sunnis get uh, prime treatment in uh, in uh, uh, Bahrain and in other countries, and the Shias get marginalized. Well, that's not a fair system. They want that change, especially when they're the major- majority in the country, and they are. So they've been protesting for that. They haven't gotten it. They haven't gotten anything in Egypt. Tunisia, if, if at most they've gotten a few cosmetic differences, but there's still a lot of anger, anger in Tunisia, and I honestly expect to see the protests break out again because nothing much has changed. And it's, you could go right across the region from Oman and Yemen. You know, we, we oh, Yemen, uh, they got rid of the old president, and a new guy came in, elected, not elected, appointed. So you've got a new face, same old policies, go across to the other end of the country, Morocco, same stuff. The people have gotten nothing, but the, but the complaints of the people are absolutely legitimate, and I, I am absolutely with them. They deserve everything they're protesting for, and if they, if, if they get out again and they keep doing this, one day they're going to get it. They're very courageous. I wish we saw more of that in the West. You mentioned Bahrain, protests, uprisings there. Uh, and yet we don't hear a U.N. Security Council calling for a no-fly zone or airstrikes or an embargo against Bahrain. I'm wondering whether, I, I ask sarcastically, whether it might uh, have something to do uh, with the fact that Bahrain uh, hosts the U.S. Uh, Navy's Fifth Fleet. Absolutely, home to the U.S. Fifth Fleet, lots, lots, lots of uh, powerful ships there. And even if the fleet weren't there, America would absolutely support the regime. Uh, there's no fifth fleet in uh, in uh, in Kuwait. Well, America just stations forces there. Uh, no fifth fleet in Kuwait, but the U.S. forces there. You've got uh, a military operation in Qatar. One of the commands is uh, I think has has two headquarters locations. One in South Florida, and I think the other is in Qatar. Uh, so, so all of this ties together. Okay, yeah, we've got to, we've got to uh, jump in here, Stephen. Uh, sorry, music creeping up. It's time to uh, take a break. We'll reassemble on the other side, continue to discuss the plight of Syria and the fake Arab Spring here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. AM 740. Welcome back. It's called the Humanitarian Doctrine. This is, uh, uh, I guess that that, uh, that term was coined by the uh, the British, um, and this is the the justification for NATO uh, targeting countries like Libya and Syria. But it's ironic. You have you have Saudi Arabia. This is horrible regime there. Much much of the country lives in poverty. Uh, women are denied basic human rights. Uh, they employ torture regularly, yet they've cozied up to the United States. Uh, Bahrain, again, same same situation. They, um, uh, the, the people there, have been have been protesting, and yet no security council uh, uh, security council call for an airstrike. So, so Stephen Lendman, uh, why then are they are they picking on Syria and not Bahrain? 
Well, the difference is one country is an ally and the other country is an enemy. It really comes down to that. But uh, but Syria is paradise for for the, for the people in Syria before the conflict began, compared to what the Bahrainis are going through. It really is absolutely nightmarish. Where people come out nonviolently, it's it's astonishing the tolerance that the people have, and it's astonishing what they're putting up with the brutality that the government, along with Saudi Arabia, that's connected to Bahrain by a causeway, and they're very concerned with any real change coming to Bahrain, because if it really does, or if the monarchy gets deposed, that would be one of Saudi's worst nightmares, because what happens in Bahrain could happen to them next. And there were protests going on in Saudi Arabia now that get no attention whatever in the Western media, but in one part of the country especially, I believe it happens to be one of the oil-rich areas. There are people that are very upset about what they've lived under for so many years, and they want the same things that the Egyptians wanted and the Bahrainis wanted. They simply want to live in a decent country and be treated like human beings. But the government, the Saudis, aren't doing it for most people. Poverty in, in this very, very wealthy country Poverty is off the charts. I wrote a recent article about Saudi Arabia, where by one estimate, and they don't keep good records there, but by one estimate from from an insider who has some knowledge to make a reasonable effort, he believes that poverty is 60%. 60% in a country is oil-rich, where the wealth is beyond counting. I think it's so immense that they that countless hundreds of billions of dollars that they pull in. But they keep it for themselves, and they do what they want with it, and they, and they put it into Western investments and so on and so forth, and they do practically nothing for most of the people in the country. Well, sooner or later, there will be protests. This is a vow regime. It needs to be overthrown. But the Saudis are in Bahrain uh, supporting the Bahraini regime, and they're really merciless against their own people. And anybody who goes up against the regime, especially activists, independent journalists, even doctors that treat injured people, people injured protesting, doctors doing it are arrested. They're put on trial. They're convicted and they're put in prison. Imagine that, a country that would do something like that. And the prisons are bulging with political prisoners. I just wrote about a political prisoner, uh, uh, Rashid. I'll get his name wrong. Uh, Rajab is his last name. Rajab is his last name. He's a founder of, uh, I believe, at least two human rights organizations. He's a member of and on the board of and very closely involved with a number of human rights organizations. And for for uh, being out in a protest or two or three and speaking publicly and making a couple of Twitter remarks about the regime and simply wanting justice that's all that he wants. That's all that ordinary people want. He was serving a three-month sentence for one Twitter comment that he made. And just a day or two ago, he was sentenced to three years in prison to silence him. And they can go after him any time and do anything they want to him. There's another man that I wrote about, uh, a co-founder of one of the organizations that Rajab is involved with. See if I can pronounce his name. Alakawaja, I think that's a close enough pronunciation. He is the man who went on a hunger strike 
I believe it lasted 104 or maybe 110 days. And for a number of days at the end, he began ingesting enough nutrients to keep himself alive. For a while, he was being force-fed, and then he voluntarily decided to take certain nutrition, not eat the way you or I would eat, but take certain nutrition to keep himself alive and yet maintain what he could call a hunger strike. And it it went on in excess of 100 days. It's impossible to imagine that, but he came very close to death a number of times. And he was so committed to what he believes in that he simply wouldn't quit. He's still in prison, as far as I know. Well, if ever there was a glaring example of uh, hypocrisy in the uh, the U.S. foreign policy, it is that they would cozy up to these, as you call them, vile regimes in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, uh, and yet target countries like Syria uh, for regime change. Very cynical a reason, regime change. Not to improve the plight of the people, but because they want a proxy state. Stay with us, Stephen Lenman, back with more of The Conspiracy Show, The Fake Arab Spring. Don't go away. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. The online poll question up at uh, richardserrett.com. Is Colorado gunman James Holmes a Manchurian candidate? Uh, Thus far, 67.6% say yes, he is. 22.1% of you say no, he is not. And 10.3% of you are not sure. Again, that's the online poll question at richardserrett.com. Back to the fake Arab Spring. Steve Lendeman joins us from Chicago. You know, I never thought I'd say this, uh, Stephen, but um, I'm kind of happy that China and Russia are around these days. If it weren't for China and Russia vetoing these uh, UN Security Council resolutions, we'd have, we'd have NATO airstrikes in Syria. We might even have boots on the ground there. Oh, I think Iran very much is on the list. Uh, the countries on the target list in the Middle East would be Syria, Hezbollah in Lebanon. Lebanon is a strange country where they have a, uh, I think they call it a confessional system where the different religious sects automatically get a certain share of the government. Well, Hezbollah uh, is uh, an elected part of the government, and they're not not belligerent. They're very belligerent in self-defense. But they're not aggressive. They don't go after anybody to cause conflict with them. They don't want a conflict with Israel or anybody else. But they're very ready to defend themselves if they're attacked. And when Israel attacked Lebanon in 2006 and just raised hell over the country, especially in the south, Hezbollah fought back valiantly, and and they embarrassed the Israeli military there was great destruction and uh, people displacement and people killed by uh, Israel. Uh, Syria, uh, Israel casualties were minimal, but really that the fight that Hezbollah put up was really extraordinary. And again, they embarrassed the Israeli military. Uh, Hezbollah is a lot more powerful now with weapons that can target Israeli cities. And if Israel attacks Lebanon again, Hezbollah has promised to respond very, very forcefully, and I think they literally could raise, could raid hell down on Israeli cities, which may make any government uh, hesitate to go to war with them. But it's still possible because they're on the list for removal. But the key one is Iran, and the, and, and the comment that, that really explains things is that the road to Tehran runs through Damascus. The idea is to separate these close allies. 
They have a very close alliance. They both have strong militaries. And if you can if you can defeat Syria and replace Assad and get another pro-Western government in place, that will isolate Iran and uh, make it an easier target to go after. Certainly not easy, because Iran has a strong military. It has weapons that can strike Israel. It can strike U.S. forces in the region. And I use, I, I'm very blunt about uh, talking about a, a war with Iran, aside from the fact that there's no justification for it at all. Iran has no nuclear weapons program. I don't say that. U.S. intelligence says it. The IAE inspectors say it. Not the Secretary General, the new one. The previous one, Al Baraday, said it. But the new one is, is, a, is a Western tool. He supports Western interests. He was handpicked to be Washington's man, a man named uh, Yukio Amano. And uh, Mohammed al-Baradeh was a different kind of guy. Not perfect, but he at least got, uh, told it mostly straight. So uh, 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 Yamano is lying, but the inspectors who go in are telling the truth. There is no country in the world more heavily inspected nuclear-wise than Iran. Israel has nuclear weapons. Nobody has ever once inspected Israel. Israel wouldn't let them, and nobody asked. So why Iran? Lots of countries have the same program Iran has. Why complain about Iran and not complain about the others? Well, anyway, Iran is on the list, but they are strong, and they can put up a heck of a fight. But uh, they don't have nuclear weapons, and if Israel or if Washington gives... Well, Israel has got its own weapons. If they start lobbying nuclear weapons at Iran to go after underground facilities, and it may take a nuclear weapon to be able to penetrate and cause any kind of damage. If they do that, I think it's Katie by the door. That's the kind of war, Richard, I call madness, absolute madness, because Iran would, 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 would retaliate as strongly as it could. I mean, literally, there would be a risk of the entire region becoming embroiled and, get, and <laughs> dare I say, uh, going up in flames in the sense that there would be a catastrophe, and there's a very good chance that Russia would get involved, that China could get involved, because they have important interests in the region they don't want to lose. Are they going to let Syria and Iran go down the drain so they'll just be dumped from the region entirely? And then uh, America creeps closer to their borders, and ultimately they're the final targets, and they know it. I don't think they want that to happen. I hope there's a red line that they will not allow Washington and the West to cross. And I'd like to see them get more aggressive. I've said this too, Richard. That bullies like Washington like to go after enemies that are easy to bowl over, just like a schoolyard bully. Schoolyard bullies don't like to fight people who can fight back. I don't think Washington wants a real confrontation with Russia or China. Maybe someday, but I don't think this is the day. And if Russia and China laid the law down and said, you will not cross this line, or you're going to be you're going to be facing our forces. Well, that, I think America would back off. Well, that's an excellent point. I mean, I never thought I'd say this, but thank God for China and Russia. Uh, I don't know if, if uh, I'm not sure about uh, Vladimir Putin. I don't think he's Thomas Jefferson, but I don't think he's Satan either. But at least he's providing an important countervalence to uh, to what's you know to the uh, American imperialism uh, and, and NATO. Uh, misadventures. Now, uh, let's get back to Syria for a minute. What do you think is going to happen to uh, Assad there? Is he going to survive this? Will he be offered asylum? Will he face the same fate as Mubarak? Will, will he be charged and convicted as a war criminal? 
I'm very worried that in the end he may get beaten no matter what he does. I'm reminded of the Balkan Wars in the 1990s. They went on for the whole decade. And Yugoslavia was one country when they began, and it was about half a dozen countries when it ended. And we had the horrors. Uh, the West didn't. The West got involved a little bit in the mid 1990s, NATO, uh, in a modest way. But then we had the horrors of 1999, 78 days, 78 days, uh, three and a half months of intensive bombing, and Kosovo and Serbia, which absolutely ravaged. So from then to now, over a dozen years later, they still haven't recovered from it. And they used depleted uranium. They just irradiated vast parts of the countries. Uh, Kosovo, a part of Serbia, was forcibly separated and made a separate country. As far as I'm concerned, they're no country. They're a bogus country. I mean, can you imagine a New England separated from the U.S. by a foreign power? and made uh, a separate country against the will of the rest of America? Well, that's what happened to Serbia. So the West did that. Uh, it was nightmarish. And a U.S. general, Wesley Clark, was the one who led the operation. And I, ha I fear that uh, we'll see a repeat of the Balkan Wars in, uh, against Syria. And there was no U.N. resolution to start that war in 1999. NATO went around uh, the Security Council and did it on its own. So they did it then. They set a precedent. And I think in the end, they'll end up doing it again if they want to. Well, it's funny you mentioned uh, General, former General Wesley Clark, former presidential uh, uh, candidate, General uh, Clark. And he stated back in 91, he was at a meeting at the White House with Paul Wolfowitz. There's that name again, former Deputy Secretary of Defense in the Bush Senior Administration and a, an architect of the Iraq War. He told Clark, apparently, that the U.S. in 1991 had a 20-year window to redraw the geopolitical lines in the world and to make regime changes as it saw fit, create these client states before another world power would rise and then the window would close. And then Wolfowitz proceeded to rhyme off about a dozen states the U.S. would overthrow. Yugoslavia, Iraq, Syria, Sudan, Somalia. So Clark was right. That's exactly what's happened over the last 20 years. He sure has. He wrote a book about it, Winning Modern Wars. And he went back again, Richard, uh, about a month or two after 9-11. And uh, he was a four-side general then. And uh, I, there were still half a dozen or so countries on the list. And he heard the list read to him again. And I, I think uh, I think Wolfowitz was the, was the incubator of this scheme. And uh, a Cheney, I think Cheney at one time was a congressman. And then he became defense secretary. Uh, he had a lot of jobs in past administrations before becoming a defense secretary, a vice president, I'm sorry, for uh, George W. Bush. But, uh, but uh, he got closely allied with uh, Wolfowitz, and, uh, and uh, uh, Donald Rumsfeld became involved, and he goes back a long way, too. I think really those three were probably the main co-conspirators, and uh, you've got the uh, Project for a New American Century, PNAC, uh, late 1990s. They talked about needing a catalyzing event to launch uh, the real campaign that they wanted to rev up and get going on. They, they had this window of a decade or so. I guess the window was about over, but certainly the stuff is going on. They're not going to close the window unless they have to. But uh, they got their second Pearl Harbor, 9-11. Certainly uh, not, the, not, not, not the formal story, we're all told. And we have another 9-11 anniversary coming up. Uh, I'm certain that topic will come up on my program. And uh, and uh, and here we go again, one war after another, 
beginning with Afghanistan. Now we're up to Syria. Iran is next. Uh, maybe uh, Hezbollah comes after that. And, uh, you know, whoever they want to knock off, they'll knock off. And, and if the wrong kind of leader pops up in one of the countries that used to have a uh, pro-Western leader, they'll get rid of that guy and they'll put somebody else in his place. And they can do it lots of ways. That You, you know, you can either have a coup or you can assassinate the guy. You can have a uh, an unfortunate air accident. Or uh, if uh, push comes to shove, you can go to war. Well, and the sad fact is, it doesn't matter who gets in, Romney or Obama, it'll be the same policy. Uh, no question, these are anxious times we're living in. And uh, Stephen, I thank you for giving us all uh, a really radical, a radically different uh, perspective on what's going on in places like uh, Syria. Thanks again. Oh, Richard, I enjoyed it very much. Happy to come on anytime. This is big stuff. Everybody needs to know about one final comment. Everything we talked about is in the interest of every one of your listeners, Richard. Uh, the, all of these, all of these uh, issues we're talking about touch their lives uh, di- directly and, and it harms them. And we all need to protect ourselves and our families and our loved ones. I sure feel that way. Absolutely. All right. Stephen Lenman is the host of the Progressive Radio News Hour and uh, also writes a blog. And I've hooked, I've uh, linked up to his um, his blog on. Uh, my web- website at richardserrett.com. So just go to the homepage at richardserrett.com, scroll down, and you'll see tonight's uh, uh, show. And under the fake Arab Spring, you'll see Stephen's name, Stephen Lenman. You click on that, and that'll take you to his uh, blog, which is sjlendman, L-E-N-D-M-A-N, dot blogspot, dot C-A. Have to have Stephen on again. Great interview. All right, listen, we've got, got some great uh, programs up and coming. Uh, Ed Decker will be along and not in the not-too-distant future to talk about Freemasonry. Is it a, a misunderstood fraternity or a satanic cult, as some um, would have you believe? And we'll also talk about near-death experiences. Thanks uh, to David Gaskin for uh, production, as always. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing re- uh, concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, and what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.